Hey guys, welcome back. This is, I think, episode five of Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. Today I want to talk about marketing, solicitation, and persuasion. And, and uh, a little relevance is, you know, that's sort of where I am with my podcast. It went live last week, just kind of the end of April. I think it's maybe the 26th or something like that. So I released episode one. I have a few recorded in the bag. My plan is to release them on every Friday. And if things go well, maybe more than one episode a week, um, if my brain keeps working the way it is. And, um, and, and, you know, it's, it's still a, an effort to organize my thoughts, to share them with people and get feedback, to focus and improve, um, this list of topics that keep coming back to me as being critical elements of my own personal path toward enlightenment and understanding more about what it means to be human and just making some simple observations that uh, I feel are um, outside the box or nonconformist or outside the mainstream. Um, and today is a pretty good one, I think, because my my concept of marketing and, and generally capitalism, uh, which we'll talk about more, I think, in a few um, upcoming episodes, you know, I want people to listen to my podcast. I've released it. What do I do to get to, to catch the awareness of potential customers and who do I want those potential customers to be? And, and what, and what do all these words mean? You know, customer marketing solicit, you know, just, just a, a brief journey uh, through the dictionary will get you some cursory ideas about what these words mean. But when you start laying them down from persuasion to marketing, to advertising, to soliciting, you know, there, there's subtle difference in these words and we tend to kind of use them all interchangeably. Um, when in fact the human language is, or the, you know, English is what I know, is is pretty uh, explicit about um, why these words are different. But I just don't think we understand them. And so, sort of just a side tangent, you know, part of that is because of what you know what a dictionary is. A dictionary is an evolving document, and I learned this from a guy named Paul Ludis on a from a web, his website arachnoid.com, a r a c h n o i d dot com, where he introduced me to the idea that a dictionary is not, in fact a book of what words mean. It's a book of what people think words mean. And so as we use things more and more interchangeably, those subtle differences in, in the original intent, I assume the original intent, maybe it's always been like this, of, of the differences in those words is lost because it gets muddied. And I've never um, really understood the difference in some of these economic definitions. Uh, and although I've read some of the, the basic economic tomes, um, I have a real problem with some elements of capitalism, and I, I try to understand it, uh, but it's just something that's that's challenging to me. And so, what I understand about economics is really gained mostly from experience with a limited uh, element of knowledge. So, I'm not really going to be able to get toward the wisdom without gaining that knowledge. So, I'm trying to understand more about it. Um, but I've always viewed marketing as being sort of a, a necessary evil, you know, because it because it rides that line of of taking advantage of someone's um, um, susceptibility to uh, persuasive methods to trick people into buying your product or or to listening to your podcast or to whatever it is you're trying to get them to do um, and and that solicitation is a little bit more of that of that trickery and marketing is a little bit more of just advertising. And then advertising in itself is just the specific way that you get your message out. Um, 
and just as an example of my my lack of business acumen, the way I run the brewery <clears throat> from from the beginning, the spirit of the brewery has always been my message, my marketing, my advertising has been we make beer. We think it's pretty good. It's different from what you can buy around. You may like it. Uh, it's available for you to try. Because I think with beer, uh, it's almost like, and I think a lot of craft breweries have, have this spirit, and that's why the small mom-and-pop brewery is truly different from any other you know, medium to larger size breweries, is we all discovered this product sort of organically in an environment of big beer advertising convincing us that an inferior product was in fact superior. And so there's a lot of that trickery going on there. I mean, you think about the history of, of beer commercials, talking frogs, bikini babes, you know, what does that have anything to do with the product? And so when advertising or marketing leaves the realm of here's our product, here's some, some sort of literal definitions of this product Here's a bunch of information for you to make a decision about whether or not this product might be appropriate for you. And then potentially you would try that product and get more information about whether or not it works in your life. And then you can decide whether or not you indeed are going to be a long-term customer or a supporter of that product or whatever. That's how it should be done to me. You know, I want to, and I really don't want to get angry about this, but I found myself one time that the, the steak truck dude stopped by my house and I was just particularly irritable on that day or whatever. And he comes to the door with his spiel about how these steaks are better and cheaper and I need to buy them. And it's one, one time shot. I was not going to be back. Da, 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 this, you know, a pressured sale to purchase the steaks. And I'm like, dude, if I want a steak, I go to the grocery store and buy a steak. It's 10 in the morning. I wasn't thinking about steak. This is terrible timing. You are not going to change my behavior in this moment. No, number one, because I think this is dumb. I mean, I'm not, oh, I, maybe I need a new car. You know, oh, I didn't even think about that. You know, I feel like the impetus for me to purchase or, uh, you know, whatever, become a part of some transaction if I were going to request a service or product or whatever, that comes from a need. And I'm very aware of what those needs are. I don't feel like advertising was meant to enhance my awareness about my personal needs. I don't think there's an advertising strategy that's going to say, hey, you didn't even know you needed this. I mean, I just don't believe it. And maybe that's because I have you know a healthy cynicism or an unhealthy cynicism about the advertising pro- pro- process but I feel like I have a lifetime's worth of evidence of companies, for lack of a, a more a holistic term, trying to convince me that I need to give them money in exchange for something that they're trying to sell. Inherently, right there, that relationship is skewed because their desire is to sell something. So I don't believe anything else that they say because their motive is to get me to give them money, period. So I don't why would I trust what follows unless it's something unoffensive, um, no non-pressure, truthful, you know, um, focused on the facts, uh, you know, unless they're trying to 
share information about the product in a way that gives me plenty of space to make my own decision, I'm going to be, I'm going to come away from that feeling threatened, feeling like I don't trust the company, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and, and then the rare cases where the, the inherent uh, value, perceived value of that product is so high that, you know, I'm, I'm willing to look past the, you know, aggressive marketing campaign or, or whatever. And, you know, I think about uh, the TV show Mad Men when I think about this a lot, because to me it seems like, and I don't know, like most things, that that's when this idea of trickery advertising or, you know, advertising where the bottom line was just to get people to buy something so that it adds another dollar to the till so that you can grow or whatever. Um, and, And that obviously became super effective for companies that wanted to just sell tons and tons and tons of units of widgets or whatever it is they're trying to sell. You know, when when volume is the goal, then I guess it makes, you know, you're, you're only going to reach a, a certain amount of people. And so in the context of my podcast, you know, I, I want the people who might appreciate my product to have the opportunity to try it out. And to do that, I have to get, get it in front of people, enhance the awareness. And I don't want to do it in such a way that it's offensive you know, I don't want to invade somebody's time, call them at two in the morning and say, hey, I got a podcast or, or whatever. I want it to be available in a passive way so that potential viewers, listeners, helpers, communicators, um, discourseians, I don't know what the word is for that, um, will have the opportunity to do that if they want to. And if they don't want to, I don't want them to, to you know, I want them to be, hear about it and be able to make a decision and for it to be out of their life if that's what they want. That's not easy to do. And so the only thing I've done so far is, you know, I have a web page, I have a Facebook site, and I've actually tried to boost, you know, because I don't have a lot of Facebook friends, figure out ways to do this. And one of those ways I think that might work is boosting them. It does seem like, you know, that puts this in front of more people in a way that they can either look at it and see if it's interesting to them and let it fall out of their feed or click on it. Um, Now, that's probably not going to get me uh, get this in the hands of a high number of people who might like it. I might reach, I, I don't know. I don't know what the big number is, so I can't tell you what the little number is. It's not going to be very effective. So there's lots of different ways you can work around that. One is probably something like clickbait, you know, put a bunch of naked people on, on there and people may be curious to click on that and then find out, Oh, by the way, I want you to look at this. I just, I just, that's not, I'm not interested in that because I don't want to really live in a world where that is what works. And unfortunately we do, you know, the Budweiser frogs and all the other things that you can think about of advertising gimmickry that actually result in sales. So it works, which is a little disturbing because what that means to me is most people aren't shopping like I am. I come up with something that I have a need, you know, I, I, I keep a general level of awareness about what's available you know, I don't, I've heard of a motorcycle, right? I mean, I know that there are, um, I know there's a clapper. If I don't like the light switch, there's this device that I can clap and it turns my lights on. You know, I have a general level of, of awareness of what's out there. And that's because of uh, assuming effective advertising. Why do we know about the clapper? You know, all those, what do you, telemarketing ads that you just, these, these 
whatever it's called, something like the ShamWow guy, where they just did these barrage of commercials just to get this thing in everybody's field of awareness. So, so the reason I'm aware of these things is because some effective advertising worked. Um, now I carry along with me opinions about products um, based on the degree of trickery, for lack of a better word, that I associate, associated with some of those products, um, you know, on the good or the bad side. You know, something like an iPhone, um, I think, is a, is a, I own one. I like Apple products. I think they have a lot of quality. I think they're ridiculously overpriced. But I'm not sure that I was beaten over the head with a barrage of, you know, solicitative trickery marketing associated with those products. It was more just like, hey, these things, they're good. And then the word of mouth on the street was also agreed with that. And then you can do your own research. And then I decided, okay, well, I've tried the the, the competitor's products. I'm going to try this product. And I found it to be a I found them to be superior products and have made the decision to pay a little more for a little bit more quality. Um, but that involves a lot of things that come from me. You know, if I just say, I want a phone, and then you open your eyes to the world of phones that are out there, I guess a lot of people in this world don't want to think too much about that. Uh, and, and, then, and then there's a lot of psychological things going on here, and, and I feel like some advertising takes advantage of that psychological availability. You know, people have trouble making decisions. They they want to make the right decision. They want to get what their friends have. You know, so so I think maybe it should be called manipulative advertising. You know, is aimed more at making people feel good than. Um, providing you with information to make your own decision on yourself. And so that brings up the, the idea of, of critical thinking. And I'm, I, I'm a proponent of critical thinking. I guess I fundamentally believe that people should make their own decisions based on meaningful elements, meaningful pieces of information that will best meet their needs uh, and, 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 and to do things like be careful with your money and not become a victim um, and just to, to think about whether or not um, you need or want something and then whether or not that thing makes sense based on the price point and whether or not that thing, product, service, whatever, is, is, has a probability of meeting the needs that you have. I, I, I just think that's a reasonable way to go about doing things. Now, I have made impulse buys and splurges and and you know what I look back on and say, well, those are stupid decisions, but I don't really beat myself up for them. But I think in a, as a general rule, something like toilet paper, which is on everyone's mind today, pre-COVID, I'm not going to go out and buy the best toilet paper there is because some commercial said that I needed to. I'm also not going to buy the cheapest that there is because I need a little bit more comfort than that. So I'm looking for something in the middle and I think that's sort of an uh, 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 an artifact of advertising is that you're going to get a s- continuum of product, and I'm going to say the word quality, in whatever it is that you want to get. There's this value. Am I getting something that's going to meet my needs? 
and 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 is that commensurate with the amount of resources that I have to exchange to get that thing? I mean, that's really the goal, right? Everybody wants to get a good deal. The the seller needs to make enough money to make a margin, whatever that is. That's a whole nother. Hopefully, I'll get to that in a minute. And then the buyer needs to feel that they got a good value for the exchange of their goods. And in a perfect world, those two things are pretty close. You know, both parties walk away saying, well, okay, I'm I'm satisfied. I didn't get the, a steal and I didn't take advantage of this person or whatever. To me, that's sort of the ideal situation where, you know, um, in any commodity product exchange in, in the, the marketplace results in fairness and, and equitability for all parties involved. And I think what, what we have instead is a huge continuum of that from people just getting blatantly ripped off to some people being able to take advantage of sellers and, you know, pay too little for a product or whatever. But inherent to that is, you know, this concept of quality. And one of my top three favorite books of all time is uh, by Robert Persig, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And there's a lot of take-homes from this book. And if you've never read it, it, it's still considered, I think, the best-selling book about philosophy of all time. And and while there are are many philosophical elements in this book, um, you know, it's really about a a, a really interesting story about a guy who... um, kind of go, goes crazy, apologies to the mental health um, uh, sufferers and, and field, but for lack of a better term, and he has to get a lobotomy and he gets his, his memories erased. And he, the book is basically about him taking a motorcycle trip that he took and is before the lobotomy and he's having memories and he's reconnecting these things. It's just fascinating. But one of the things that stands out in that book for me is the, the reason that he went crazy um, for lack of a better term, is because he was trying to define the word quality. What is quality? What gives one item higher quality than another? And is this inherent? Is this an inherent thing, an inherent quality <laughs> of a, of an object or person, place, or thing, or whatever? And it's it's a good, it's an interesting question. What makes something better than another? Uh, is that inherent in the item itself? Is an iPhone inherently better than a competitor, competitor whatever, um, uh, Android phone or flip phone? Uh, or is that a decision that we have to make as consumers? That's a whole other podcast. But the, the concept that um, um, in any exchange where you are trading resources, money, for something, your service, uh, you want to be satisfied that the level of quality that you're getting is commensurate with what you're paying for it. And I think one of the tragedies and why this is an important topic is that that is changing. You know, um, I think it's much more common nowadays. And it doesn't matter that this has changed through time. I'm, I'm assuming that it has, and it may be completely untrue. Most of my ideas about the way things used to be are wrong. I think things have kind of always been the same. But what appears to me is there's a whole lot of crap on the market that is selling for more than it's worth as a result of the trickery or the dishonesty in marketing. A buddy of mine introduced me to the phrase called a race to the bottom. And I think that applies here. And I know this is a term that existed before he said it. And I think 
what it means can be illustrated best by me giving an example of a lawnmower or any piece of yard equipment with a small engine in it. Nowadays, and this just happened to my coworker. He's got an old weed eater. It's been a great weed eater. In fact, I have one just like it. I love it. It's one of my favorite pieces of equipment in the house because it, it starts up. There's some problems with it, but a couple pulls and the thing is going and it runs at full speed and it does what it's supposed to do. That has become more and more rare um, that a product works well over time. And so he finally has a problem with his. And of course, he prefaces this whole thing with, you know, I've already gotten more than my money's worth. This thing has lasted me eight or nine years. It's always been great. The fact that I have a problem with it now is not really disappointing to me. What is disappointing is that if he um, buys, I don't know if it needed a new carburetor or whatever, we finally decided that it needed, um, it's pretty much the same price to buy the part as it is to buy a complete new unit. And I've had this experience with chainsaws, lawnmowers, weed eaters, leaf blowers, all of the little, the small engine. Um, and then the first thing mechanics will tell me is because it's because there's ethanol and gasoline now, and that's a, a major um, detriment to small engine parts and big engine parts. And um, and so, you know, that's that's because gas... It's cheaper if you can dilute it with a little bit of ethanol, but it's bad for motors. And then my response is, well, why can't they build a motor that is less affected by ethanol? And it turns out they can. It's just a little bit more expensive. The point is, for small engines, we've gone from products being available that are built to be serviced over the long haul to something that's essentially disposable. And I think it's very true in the small engine uh, world and probably true in lots of other things. I mean, you think about how cheap crap is nowadays when you, you buy it. And maybe it's always been like this again. I think part of this is just because uh, bigger economic issues like sending all of our labor to China and having things made inexpensively um, – the point is you can build something really cheap that looks like something else and it's now competing with that product that really is way lower quality and value but can be priced closer and so there's there's the, where the trickery comes in they say there's a lawnmower on the market that's really good it's $200 it's got a great reputation it's been around for 40 years it's still pretty serviceable it hasn't really changed much because they built it well in the first place and you know um but, you know, it's red and it's kind of ugly and it doesn't do anything fancy. And they've ne- it's from a company that's never really had to advertise because, or market or whatever, solicit uh, or persuade people to buy it because it's had a really good reputation. The only way to really compete in that market when somebody has 40 years worth of reputation, good reputation, is to offer something cheaper. So what does someone do? They build a lawnmower that is shinier, it's nicer, it's a better color, it maybe has a couple of different features, and it's $100 cheaper than the competing um, lawnmower, and they have an advertising campaign that says, you're paying too much for your lawnmower, but it turns out it's made with cheap parts, it's designed to last maybe one season and then fall apart, and then when it does, you can't buy any of the parts to fix it, so you just have to buy another one. Not only is this a horrible, wasteful, long-term wasteful plan, it, it, it's disturbing because 
to pay $100 for something that's only going to last for a season is a much lower value over the long term than by paying $200 for something that may last you 10 years without needing any service at all. And so it's this short term, again, the psychology thing. I'm paying less. I don't care in that moment that it's not going to last 10 years because I'm only thinking about right now. I mean, it's 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 genius. But in my mind, that that product shouldn't even exist. Or if it does exist, it ought to exist in a world where the advertising is truthful. Hey, it's a lawnmower. It lasts you a year, maybe two. It doesn't have serviceable parts. Like, what's the truth? And that's why we have things like Angie's List and, and reviews on Amazon and all these other things for people to sort of share this information. But none of, you know, that's all as accurate as Wikipedia or the dictionary, right? It's just people's opinions about things and you don't know how true it is. Although those things I think can be very helpful and there are ways to find out um, what the quality of things might be when you buy them. At least provide yourself with more information about something before you make a purchase. And I know if I'm going to spend $100 or more on something I am, adamant about being informed. But just a side example story, I have four or five chainsaws that people have given me over the years because they gave up trying to fix them. And I thought, of course, erroneously that I could fix them and I'll, and I'll actually go through the process of, and some of them I could get started and some of them I just gave up on, but it was this constant battle. Something was always going wrong, probably because, you know, my service was inferior and I didn't really actually fix it, but I improved it, made it work a little better. But over the long term, and so I struggled with chainsaws. I don't know, what am I, 47 for 20 years, just always having a chainsaw that was a piece of crap and being very frustrated whenever I had to go use it. Um, and, and so this, we needed a chainsaw um, and something that was going to work more than a couple of days. And, and I needed to not be frustrated. And so I spent close to $300 on a chainsaw that I did research on that was basically the best selling one on the market, fewest complaints, da 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 da. And in using it, I've been through three sets of chains, uh, sharpenings, uh, and I don't know, 10 tanks of gas. So I've, I've run it a little bit. Zero problems. It is an absolute dream. So, the, and, and granted, the chainsaws that I got were used were free, but those things were $150 if I was to go out and buy one and then guaranteed to have those same problems for me just like they did for their previous owners versus something that wasn't quite twice as much. Way more than double the inherent quality. You know, it's like there's this bell curve of 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 that's just shifted to the low end, you know, and what's available. And the race to the bottom describes that the tail has gotten lower and lower and lower. You know, if the x-axis is quality or um, and the the y-axis is some I don't, I don't want to go there, but you know, if that bell curve represents, you know, the amount of quality, Oh yeah. The Y axis is quality and the X axis is price, you know, that, that, um, you get less and less for what you pay for, I think is what the race to the bottom means. And, you know, what used to cost you 10 bucks and would be pretty good now costs you 20 bucks and sucks as a general rule of thumb. And it's hard to keep things inexpensive. Um, but one of the ways that I think we get people to buy things is by 
price point. And one of the things we've learned is if you can just give people uh, the bottom level version of whatever it is they're trying to buy that's cheaper than anything else, right there you're going to get sales. And so it's encouraged people to produce goods and services that suck for a low price point. And what bothers me, I guess, is that the consumer hasn't called their shit on that, that they haven't figured it out and, re- and had therefore refused to buy it. Because in a the way capitalism is supposed to work is that through com- competition, um, the, you know, the, the people determine what, where, what companies survive. But I'm, I'm going to suggest that persuasion and uh, aggressive marketing campaigns have basically, um, altered that natural competitive force and now created this unnatural environment whereby companies can trick people into buying things that are not meeting their needs. And so is it up to the company to be honest or is it up to the consumer to be informed? Well, I think the forces inherent in capitalism suggest that we can't rely on companies to be honest, unfortunately. If we don't have a means of punishing them for failed transaction or dissatisfaction or whatever, if we don't have a means of of calling them out on that and affecting their business by that, then what else can we do, right? That's how it's supposed to work. If a company continually provides an inferior product at too high a price point, people should stop buying those items, things, whatever, and then the companies would no longer, would have to change, you know, alter their, their strategy or fold. That's how it's supposed to work. But in the presence of aggressive marketing campaigns, that goes away. You can continue, you know, yeah, you made 10, 15, 100, 200,000 people mad, but there's still more people out there to buy them. We'll just keep slamming them upside the head with this aggressive marketing campaign and enough suckers, like P.T. Barnum said. I guess that's what it is. It's we're suckers, you know, and we're so afraid of not being suckers that we end up being more suckers. And the advertising geniuses out there can just can monitor that. And as we become afraid, their strategies change to, well, let's let's dissuade their fear, and that's going to get them to buy our product. <clears throat> and maybe all those things are okay, but it really irritates the crap out of me, both that people don't, individuals don't take more responsibility for their role in this system uh, of, of weeding out the inferior stuff and rewarding the good stuff with our purchasing power, and that the the companies themselves don't have some ethical standards that they feel like they should live up to uh, by delivering on what they say. But this idea of marketing trickery just it, it it opens the door for all that stuff. And okay, so what really what really gets me angry is, I guess I'll have to use some examples to be more a little bit more specific with the brewery. You know, we've always, always said, I've always said, I want to take an anti-solicitation standpoint. And what I meant by that is I don't want to have to trick or con- I don't want to convince you to buy my beer. I want to make it available to you. So there's some minimum level of marketing that I have to do to make you aware of this. And we do that 
by word of mouth and social media. In the last few years, we've actually had to spend a little bit on social media because it used to be that you posted a Facebook post and all your friends saw it or all your likes saw it. Now that's not true and you have to sort of pay to promote things, except that. But we spend a very minimal amount on advertising. People come to me all the time with opportunities for me to advertise in their print media, on their website, on their commercial, on their radio station, the first thing I say is, can you show me a return on my investment if I give you the metrics in my business that measure dollars? If I spend $1,000 on radio advertising with you, can you show me what the return is going to be on that $1,000 investment? And 100% of the time, I get these looks from people that are just like, why in the world would you think that I would know that? And and the reason I think that you would know that is that's how you fucking sell something. What business exists where you can say, hey, here's a hamburger. Um, I'm not really sure if you can eat it or that it tastes good or that it's actually even really a hamburger, but hey, you can have it for five bucks. Come on. I mean, you have to be able to demonstrate some effectiveness of your product. And and so right away from the beginning, I am very suspicious of advertising because it's, it's, it's a, something that people can sell, but they don't have to show any, there's no onus in, um, responsibility inherent to the seller in that transaction to guarantee anything about their delivery. When I sell a beer, it's sort of like, hey, you can taste it for free first before you commit to paying for it, you know, something, you know, or if somebody gets halfway through a pint and just decides it's, they don't like it, I'm happy to replace that with something else or at least have a discussion with them, something. And so that the onus of a product's efficacy or value or quality is completely on the consumer is absurd. So right there. And then, and then, so the general lack of, uh, return on investment data for advertising is also disturbing. I mean, come on, if I'm, I'm a small business. If I'm going to spend a hundred bucks, I need to at least know I'm going to make that hundred bucks back. And without even, you know, one person actually told me, you know, that, that's, that's a, you make a good point. I, I see what you're saying. And, he, and then he had some strategies. He said, give me, you know, you pay me $70 a month. You put some flyers up in my, place that I have all this traffic, um, and put a little coupon in there that's a, you know, a dollar off a beer. And then you can count the number of coupons that you get, uh, when people come into your store and then you can sort of determine for yourself how much money you made off of that investment. I'm like, thank you. You at least that's one person. And this has happened probably close to a hundred times, um, where I'm intimately involved in, in it. And we get emails all the time that I ignore and they talk to my partners and other people at the business a lot about advertising. It's a scary, scary world. Um, but it's, it's a necessary, I do want to advertise. I want people to be aware if there's somebody out there 30 minutes away, that's like, man, I wish there was a place that I could go get a craft beer IPA or whatever. It's a bump. It's a bummer that I don't know about any of those places. I mean, that's that's a missed opportunity, right? I want to get to those people. But at the same time, I don't want to spend my annual revenue to get them because that return on the investment is negative, <laughs> terribly negative. So it's, tri- it's tri- tricky. And I don't want somebody 
I mean, there's another, there's another element to this that suggests through advertising, you may get support and some dollars, but there's unanticipated consequences of getting customers that maybe aren't a good fit. So people like to drink beer. Some people like to get drunk and rowdy um, and, and, and be mean or rude. Now, I don't want to attract those people. And so part of, part of my intent is that I'm only going to attract customers who feel invested in my business. And one of the cool things about my business is that it's, it's so community. It's such a community effort. I mean, people volunteer to hang art shows. They bring decorations in. They paint for us. They put shelves up for us. They put mulch in our yard. I mean, um, people feel invested in the business and they help us take care of it. Those are the types of customers I want. We have had events in the past where we wanted to attract a broader audience and more people. And what we end up getting is people that aren't invested in our business that may be coming from out of town just to party. And we find that those events end up being more costly because of damages, because of trouble, because of you know, potential violence. We've never had any real events like that, but certainly the threat of those things. And so um, it's really not worth it for us. And, and we're small enough and mobile enough to where we don't have to have every penny we can be selective about. Um, and, I, and I think over the long term, it makes better business sense. Whereas when growth becomes your mantra and you just want to sell more and more and more and more, um, you have to have every penny because your expenses are so high. And that gets into kind of a, a another third, fourth, fifth H point that where I see this advertising trickery come in is when businesses get to be a certain size. You know, what I've noticed is that in my business and presumably with other businesses, word of mouth, probably you know, minimal level of advertising is going to sell you up a, a, to a certain asymptotic threshold. And that's going to work. For, and that may change through time, but you're not going to get on some linear exponential growth model by by just doing that, unless you just have an exceptional product that that um, that the, the market was really hungry for. Uh, and then there's things like fidget spinners where that may happen exponentially and then just, just disappear altogether. And that's not a healthy business model. Or I guess it could be if you intended to do that and you plan it. But for a, for a business that wants to stay in long term, the, the the mantra that you learn in economics in high school or college is that you have to grow to stay in business. If you're not growing, you're dying. And we were on that uh, approach for a while. And so we grew to a certain point where we sort of hit a, an easy capacity. Um, actually, we were doing really well. Um, and then other businesses started opening and, opening and realistic competitive competition and was introduced to the market. And our numbers kind of went back down. Then it became important for us. Well, if we want to get back up, and take the market share that we had before, now that we're sharing it, we're going to have to spend money to get money. And then it came down to how much margin is it wor- is worth it. And for me, it was like, well, if I'm going to spend 100 bucks, I need to bring back in like 120, 140, 150, you know, so I'm making some sort of meaningful 20, 30, 40% profit on the money that I invested. And we tried that for years, and what we found is that it was more like two to five percent. So if I was spending a hundred bucks to get those incremental sales beyond some comfortable threshold, 
I was spending a hundred bucks to bring back in a hundred and two. And then there was the cash flow issue where I was spending that money in January, but I wasn't seeing it again until May. Uh, and so there's opportunity costs there. If I don't have cash on hand, I can't do a lot of things and I'm a lot less flexible. And then that, that long-term model just wasn't working for us. And what it ended up is we were, you know, went from spending $20,000 a month to spending $50,000 a month. And we weren't really pulling in a whole lot more money. And we were way less profitable than we ever had been when we were trying to grow. And I don't know if this is unique to the brewery business, but what I decided over the long-term was that there truly is no middle class in breweries. There's little tiny breweries that operate kind of at that market demand threshold uh, and just sort of take what their sales are, what they get without putting a whole lot of money into trying to increase sales or distribute into far farther and farther away markets. And then there are bigger regional breweries that, you know, are big enough to have gained some economies of scale, to have some contractual um, power in getting helps with their sales force and being able to hire sales forces to be out on the street to help, you know, um, secure their sales and in, in, in more scattered geographic areas and things like that. But then this middle ground, you know, that I call sort of, you know, small, well, I think we're mom and pop, but the small breweries between the mom and pops and like the regional breweries, not that you care, but somewhere between like a thousand and 3000 barrels a year, which is still super crazy, tiny, uh, relative to any other brewery you've ever heard of. Um, it's really hard to be there because you're, you're growing from one thing to the next. They're, they're, they're such different things, um, from a financial, uh, infrastructure standpoint to a sales and marketing standpoint. It's like at this level, you don't really need any sales and marketing at this level. Your sales and marketing has to be giant, but in order to support that giant sales and marketing force, um, you have to make enough beer. And so what happens is when you're trying to make enough beer to get the money, you don't have that sales and marketing force to do it. And so it becomes really difficult, um, to become big enough and to secure enough accounts and sales, uh, to, to support the team that you need to, um, continue that or to make that, um, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, um, to make that last in the long term. And so, what happens is a lot of breweries that try to grow can't make it uh, big enough and spend all their money, and then they don't have any money left. And I think that's probably true for a lot of small businesses that try to grow. And and so what I've found as a result of all that is we make more money staying small because we're ex- we're working around the demand that exists naturally in the market. And we're brewing to order, basically. Say that demand changes, but it's not that dynamic. And one of the things that I do as part of my job is is to monitor that and brew to that. So I'm not spending any more money on cost of goods sold uh, than what I'm selling. And I'm selling everything that I make, and I'm not making any more. And sometimes I might come up short, and sometimes I might come up with a little bit too much. But it's not tens of thousands of dollars in excess inventory. That model... That allows us to run lean and cheap, and we work smarter and not harder. It's a better place to work. It's a better place to be. It's a better business to be involved in, and we actually have more money left over. And I have three years of data versus seven years of the old way that suggests that this is real, even though the COVID thing drastically altered everything. Hopefully, I get an opportunity to go back in and try the skin.
so, um, you know, I, I wrestle a lot with this of wanting to grow and growth is through advertising. And so I think the bigger you get, the more critical the sales and marketing team becomes and the advertising team, whatever you want to call that. There's a lot of expenses involved with human, human bodies and um, contracts and spending money on with other companies, business to business, you know, paying them to advertise your product, whatever it is. That becomes more and more expensive as you grow. Uh, as you grow, those incremental sales cost more and more and more. That law of diminishing returns, and I forget what the other one is, um, you know, where things just cost more uh, because with each successive sale, you make less money. And I'd never really understood why a company has to be that big. You know, isn't it, isn't and I guess it, it, it's then. Then I guess what happens when, as you grow is you end up becoming, you have shareholders, and once you have shareholders, then there's a whole new uh, revenue, not revenue, but expense stream where you're having to pay your shareholders back. So all of a sudden, your expenses got even higher. And uh, I, yeah, I can definitely understand having half a million dollars left over at the end of the year versus having fifty thousand dollars left over at the end of the year is much more valuable, but what are the differences in all of the resource expenditures between those two businesses? I'd say the biggest one has to be related to advertising. And so I guess in my perfect world, you know, consumers act as informed consumers by learning about the consumer decisions that they want to make. Um, they get some knowledge they get some experience, they learn, and they use the power of their dollars to select for products that offer a commensurate level of value or quality, whatever that means. Um, and they're a little more careful. Um, and, and I'm not expecting, you know, impulse buys and sports cars and motorcycles. I'm not going to fault anybody for doing those things. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm really talking about the basic goods um, if you're going to spend. $150,000 on a Ferrari, you know, probably going to get a pretty sweet car. And whether or not that's worth it, it's a whole other question. Um, shouldn't there be a $60,000 car that's pretty close or even a $30,000 car that's still pretty awesome? But that's up to you. Um, what I'm talking about is the basic needs, the basic responsibility of humans living in a capitalist um, market uh, that we got to hold people accountable for these things by not purchasing um, items that don't do what, what they're supposed to do. Or maybe this is just what we want now. Maybe we want a, a weed eater that you throw away every year and you buy a new one. Um, but I really think that's not good either, just environmentally. You know, the, the cost of running that business has to be higher than the cost of running a business where you actually make a good product and sell it for a little bit more, but it lasts for longer. Um, but I think these big businesses over the long term, it's just about numbers. They just want to sell more and more things. And so that bothers me. And if it bothers you, you know, maybe you can share some of your thoughts with me about what we can do about that or share your experiences about what's happened in your life that, that relates to that concept. Um, is it important and does it matter that we shape the f the the market that we exist in, and and 
in doing so, can we improve the quality of our lives uh, and, and, and the things that we need and the things that we buy? And maybe, you know, change the financial landscape and improve and, and improve it for a majority of people. I think there's, I think there's an answer. I think there are answers in there. Um, yeah. So share your thoughts with me if you will. And I, well, I look forward to talking a little bit more about my view of capitalism, uh, and focus on competition, maybe in episode six, we'll see. Remember you can, uh, reach out to me at K plus E is wise at gmail.com or visit my website at chrisbercher.com or find me on Facebook and Twitter. View my podcast on your favorite podcast server and check out my YouTube videos. Uh, appreciate you spending your time with me and I look forward to talking with you again. Take it easy and be safe.